Hello and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. Well, it's been a long time since I've done one of these commentaries. I've been uh, wanting to get back to doing them, uh, but it's been a busy time. I've been working on another book and some articles and encyclopedia entries and conferences and teaching students and, and lectures and whatnot. So it's been a busy time. But I've been wanting to get back to them. I get a very, very good reaction from folks. I think that these, uh, these commentaries actually do serve some function in terms of uh, uh, getting people to focus on uh, the abolitionist approach and the importance of veganism uh, as, as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement and the, um, and the importance of, of nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. And so um, I've been wanting to get back to them, been meaning to do so for some time. And um, I have a general topic I want to talk about today, about moral reasoning in, in animal rights. But, but the, the actual trigger for my doing this today, as opposed to tomorrow or next week or whatever, is that something happened yesterday that I think is really significant and it requires uh, some focus. And I think we really need to think about it in terms of what it means. And that is the death of a dog in Northern Ireland named Lennox. And... Um, Lennox was a, alleged to have been a pit bull. He looked to me like he was a, a black lab, but he was alleged to have been a pit bull. And apparently in Northern Ireland, uh, being a pit bull, the, the state of existing as a pit bull is illegal. And, um, and uh, he was killed by the, uh, by the order of the uh, Belfast City Council. Uh, there were some allegations that he was vicious, but from what I read, that certainly uh, seemed to... Uh, it certainly seemed to be open uh, uh, in terms of or in question as to whether or not he was really vicious or whether or not the allegations that he was vicious were uh, just um, things that the uh, the authorities um, claimed to justify what they were doing. But people are outraged. They you know they're outraged that Lennox been killed. That Lennox was killed, and they ought to be outraged. Uh, I mean, this idea that pit bulls are vicious uh, per se is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Pit bulls are absolutely are just marvelous dogs. Uh, we had one. We've had many dogs, um, and um, and one of our uh, more recent dogs was a pit bull mix that we picked up here on the streets of Newark, New Jersey, many, many, many years ago. She's now uh, dead, but uh, lived a very, very long life. I hope it was a happy life. She was a terrific dog. And she was a pit bull mix and, um, and probably would have been killed had she been picked up and brought to a shelter because pit bulls don't, don't fare very well. They don't, they don't get adopted uh, as easily as other dogs do. They sit in shelters for long periods of time and they're killed. A lot of them are killed. And they're terrific dogs. And she was an absolutely marvelous dog. Came from the streets. When we got her, she was, um, she was absolutely terrified of humans. She lived in the bathroom. In our, uh, in our loft in Greenwich Village in New York City for about four or five days before she would even come out. Uh, it was really, it was very, very sad. And, uh, but once she, um, once she got used to us and got used to the other dogs, she, she was just terrific. And she was sort of the, the, the den mother of the house, as it were. And uh, she really was just a terrific dog and gentle as gentle gets. And it just makes me very upset when people suggest that pit bulls are dangerous dogs, vicious dogs, whatever, that is just nonsense. There are vicious chihuahuas, there are vicious poodles, there are vicious frogs, I guess. I mean, you know, I mean, human beings do horrible things to animals, and, you know, and animals respond and, 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 uh, and become aggressive because that's what they have to do to survive because of the insane things that we do to them. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, are there vicious pit bulls? Yes, I, of course there are, but they didn't they didn't come that way. They got that way because we made them that way. So this idea that you know that pit bulls are per se killable, as it were, in Northern Ireland or any place else, is um, is just a, a, a crazy. And and as I say, there seems to be quite a bit of uh, of, of dispute about whether Lennox was a, a, a vicious dog or had vicious propensities or whatnot. Uh, and so. People are outraged that Lennox was killed. All over the world, people are outraged that Lennox was killed. And they should be outraged. What the Belfast City Council did was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. It was a wrong to Lennox to take his life. It was a wrong to Lennox's human family. It was just a, a, a morally unjustifiable thing to do. People are properly outraged. Animal advocates all over the place are outraged. And they ought to be. 
Then the question becomes, how many of those people who are outraged, really upset, how many of those people are vegans? Now my guess is that it's probably a fairly slim number, a very small number of people who are vegans. Now think about that for a second. People are upset with Belfast City Council, and I've seen some of the comments they've made, you know, why did the Belfast City Council think that it had the right to make a decision, a life and death decision about Lennox? And the answer is, I agree completely. My question to everybody who's upset about this, who's not a vegan, is, and what right do you have to make the life or death decisions about animals being killed, tortured and killed, for no better reason than the fact that you like the taste of animal products? I mean, think about that for a second, people. I mean, you know, this idea that, that yeah, it's terrible what they did to Lennox. And, and you know what? Today, 150 million animals will be killed worldwide for food, not counting fish. Okay, 150 million animals. All of them. Every bit as innocent as Lennox. Every bit as vulnerable as Lennox. All of those animals, 150 million, not counting fish, will be killed for no better reason than we like the taste. So, you know, this idea that the, the, the Belfast City Council did something wrong, yeah, they did. And it's great that people are outraged. And you know, what, 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 it, what's really, the, the, the good side of that is that um, it shows that people really are morally concerned about animals. And we're gonna, I'm going to get to that in a few minutes when I talk about this whole idea of moral reasoning and, and thinking about animal rights. But, you know, it shows that people really do care. They, they do have moral concern about animals. They don't think of animals, at least dogs, as they don't think of, of, of at least some animals as things. And I'd like to think that many of the people who claim to be animal advocates, who were protesting the impending death and now the death of Lennox, that those people regard animals as members of the moral community. But what we need to do is we need to generalize that moral concern. It's not just Lennox. You know, it's the, 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 all of the animals that we're exploiting for food, for clothing, for entertainment, for vivisection, all that stuff. But just focusing on what you eat and what you wear, if you were concerned about what happened to Lennox, if you object to what happened to Lennox, but you're not a vegan, you're not thinking clearly. It's that simple. There's no getting around it. What they did to Lennox was unjustifiable. What we do when we eat, wear, or use animal products, flesh or dairy, there is no distinction between the two. Can't draw a line between flesh and dairy. Animals used for dairy are kept alive longer, as a general matter, are kept alive longer than animals used for meat. They're treated every bit as badly, if not worse, and they all end up in the same slaughterhouse anyway. Okay, there's no morally coherent distinction between flesh and dairy. So if you're consuming those products, if you're wearing leather or fur or wool or silk or whatever, if you're using animal products, there's no need to do that. You're not on a desert island facing starvation. You're not on that lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, you know, with whether, you know, whether or not you, you kill the, the animal or, you know, or, or die. I mean, you're not in that situation. I mean, this is a no-brainer. When we talk about exploiting animals, when we talk about, you know, whether we have a right to exploit animals, the only way that question makes sense is in situations where there's a necessity to do so. And certainly we don't have, we're not compelled, there's no necessity when it comes to eating them or wearing them. We have choices, but we, we like the taste of animal products, we like the look of animal products in terms of fashion, so we continue to exploit. So I, I suggest to you, think about Lennox. Let, let the legacy of Lennox be that we raise our consciousness, all of us who are concerned about animals, everybody, every person who hears this, every person who was concerned about Lennox, rightly so, let, let his legacy be our raised consciousness about the plight of all animals. All of them are as innocent as Lennox, all of them are as vulnerable as Lennox. And if animal rights make sense, it doesn't stop at Lennox. So, this is a great opportunity 
It's like my, it's like it's it's another Michael Vick moment. You know, Michael Vick was that American football player who was arrested and served time in prison for dogfighting. Everybody was was outraged with Michael Vick. Outraged. Many of them, many people still are. Many people will not watch the Philadelphia Eagles for which uh, Michael Vick plays, the team that Michael Vick plays for now. They won't watch that team play because they are so upset with Michael Vick. Still, to this day, it happened, I think, in 2007, 2012, people are still upset with Michael Vick. Why? Because he imposed suffering on animals. He killed dogs, he, he, he fought the dogs, he drowned dogs, he hung dogs, he did, he did terrible things. What was his justification? He enjoyed dogfighting. People say, oh, that's outrageous. Why is it outrageous? How is that any different from the fact that we participate in the suffering and death of 56 billion animals worldwide a year for food, not counting fish. That's 150 million animals a day. The best justification we have is they taste good. So, you know, the Lennox moment is a Michael Vick moment. It's the same idea. You know, we get upset about this stuff. We regard animals as members of the moral community. We are outraged when people do things for when we when they cause them to suffer for pleasure or when they kill them in an in an unjustifiable context. Well, that's what we do when we're not vegans. So, if you care about Lennox, if you object to what happened to Lennox, and you should, if you object to dogfighting or bullfighting or any animal use and you think it's immoral, ask yourself if you're not a vegan, gee, how is what I'm doing any different from what they're doing or what they did? Why do I object to what they did and I don't object to what I'm doing? That's the question you need to ask yourself. And it's an important question. It's a key question. Okay, so that was the prompt for my wanting to do this today as opposed to tomorrow or next week or whatever. And now let me talk about the general uh, subject that I've been meaning to address in a podcast for a while. And that is, you know, we've all had this experience. The, the, the topic is moral reasoning and animal rights. And, you know, we've all had the experience of having a conversation with somebody. You, know, you explain, you, 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 you make the logical arguments about why people should not exploit animals, why animals should have the right not to be property, etc., etc. And you have the conversation with somebody and their response is, you know, you make a lot of sense, I see what you're saying, I don't really disagree with what you're saying, but it's not going to I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm going to continue to exploit animals. Everybody who's listening to this has had that experience. And there's a frustration there, and the frustration is, why is it that people don't see? You, know, you make the logical, rational argument, and they don't accept it. Why? How can that be? And the answer is, quite clearly, logic and rationality are not enough for some people. You need moral concern. Something else is needed in addition to logic and rationality, and that something else is moral concern. You have got to regard animals, or at least some animals, as members of the moral community before the logic and the rationality can make any sense. It is that simple. And it's not that you've failed to make the logical or rational arguments clearly or well. It's that they just don't respond. They just say, look, you know, I I've, understand what you're saying. I, I hear what you're saying. It makes sense. But I'm not going to change. We've all had that experience, and it's frustrating. Why is it that logic and rationality don't work? And the answer is, and this is not rocket science, folks. Logic and rationality aren't enough. You need something else for this to work. You need something else for people to change. What is that something else? Well, it's moral concern, moral impulse. Those are two 
separate ideas. I actually think that they're the same concept, but um, we can talk about them as separable uh, uh, ideas so that you could get a sense of what I'm talking about. Moral concern is the idea that animals, or at least some animals, are members of the moral community. They are, they are beings to whom we have direct moral obligations. They matter. They're not things. So in order for the logic, not in order for the logical and the rational arguments to work, you need to start off with someone who believes that animals matter morally. And, and has the moral impulse, that is, the, the moral belief is going to translate into action. So, you know, you have people say, well, you know, I believe X, but then they don't change their behavior. Well, if they really believe it, if you, if you believe something morally, if you really believe something morally, then it is my, my view that what that means is that it provides a reason for your action. So if you really believe it, you'll act on it. If you tell me you believe it, but you don't act on it, then I don't think you really believe it. Okay, but but that's you know we can that's a separate argument. Um, what I want to focus us on is the fact that there are two concepts. I I think they're very very closely related. I think in many ways they're the same concept, but they're two different ideas, and so I want you to understand them. You need moral concern. You need to believe that animals, at least some animals, are members of the moral community, that they matter. And you need moral impulse, that is, the, the, the notion that the belief translates into action. If you have someone who has moral concern for, for animals, at least some animals, then you, can make, then you can make the logical and rational argument. If somebody doesn't have that moral concern, if someone isn't willing to act on the moral belief that animals are members of the moral community, then all the logic and the rationality of the world isn't going to work. If someone doesn't care, they don't care. Caring is not a matter of logic and rationality. I mean, you might have somebody who really cares very, very deeply about morality and wants to do the right thing, doesn't particularly care about animals, but, but cares about morality, and that person might be responsive to the logic the logical or rational arguments about animals and about other, about, about humans and non-humans alike. But that person cares about morality. You need to care before the logic and the rationality can make a difference. And if you've got somebody who doesn't care, the logic and the rationality really aren't going to make a great deal of difference. Okay? Let me give you an example. I wrote a book in 2000 called Introduction to Animal Rights, Your Child or the Dog. In the book, I introduce the reader in the beginning to Simon the Sadist. Simon the Sadist is, is somebody who gets off on torturing dogs. And, and I ask the reader to think about whether it would be right for you know, how, how the reader would respond to Simon torturing the dog. And the reason why I use that example is because most of the people who are reading the book are people who care about animals, or else you're not going to read Introduction to Animal Rights, Your Child to the Dog. So they care about animals, and they most likely care about dogs or cats, because those are the animals, that the companion animals that many of us have had experience with. And the idea of torturing the dog is really an obnoxious idea to most people. So what I do is I say, okay, fine, you meet Simon the Sadist, you're outraged by what he did. Why? Because you regard dogs as members of the moral community. You think that they're, they're moral beings. You reject the idea that dogs are just things that people can exploit for the hell of it and that they can torture dogs because it's fun to torture dogs. Okay, That's what you believe. Then I spend the rest of the book saying, if that's, what you, if, if, if that's where you are, then you need to see that you ought to extend that moral concern to all sentient beings. And you ought to support the abolition of exploitation, not the regulation of exploitation. That if you really, you know, so I want to take the reader, I want to say, look, if you've got moral concern about what Simon's doing with this dog, what I want to do is use logic and rationality to show you, you ought to be concerned about all sentient beings, and you ought to support the abolition and not merely the regulation of animal exploitation. Now, a, a more recent example of that, I talked about a few minutes ago in the context of Lennox, and that's Michael Vick. 
What was the argument I made about Michael Vick? The argument was that if you're outraged by what Michael Vick did, then you ought to see that eating hot dogs and wearing leather shoes is really no different. You're really, you know, you're doing nothing different from what Michael Vick did if you're exploiting animals. If you're not a vegan, you're Michael Vick. If you're not a vegan, you're Simon the Sadist from Introduction to Animal Rights. But the argument in both cases, and that's not the only argument I make for animal rights, but that's one of the arguments I make. And and um, you know, I mean, and, and the, the the strategy of that argument is to, to get people to see that you don't really need to accept a very complex theory of rights to get to the conclusion that you ought to be a vegan. If you accept that it's wrong to inflict suffering on animals without a good justification, then you ought to be a vegan. That's all you need. That's all you need to accept is that notion that other things being equal, it's morally wrong to inflict suffering on a sentient being without a good justification. If you accept that, and you know what? Most people do. Then logic and rationality can get a lot of people to the point where they say, yeah, you're absolutely right. I ought to be a vegan. And that argument has worked with lots and lots of people. Has it worked with everybody? No. A lot of people say, yeah, I really am concerned, but I don't buy the argument that, you know, we need to abolish exploitation, it's okay if we regulate it, and, you know, and I, I think that animals matter, but I don't yet accept your argument, or I don't accept your argument that, you know, that we shouldn't be eating happy meat or, you know, ha happy eggs or whatever people think they ought to eat. Um, you know, I mean, but, but it has all, it's, it's worked for a lot of people to get them to the point of saying, yeah, you know, veganism makes sense. Now, one of the other arguments I make in Introduction to Animal Rights is most of us accept the argument that it's wrong to inflict suffering on animals without a good reason. So, we're starting off with people, anybody who's listening to that argument, anybody who nods when, you know, I mean, when I give lectures to um, non-animal groups, to just general, general public lectures, I always ask people, to identify whether anybody in the audience disagrees with the proposition that it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering on animals. And virtually no one, you know, there's always, there's always a comedian who thinks that it's useful to raise his or her hand, but generally people don't. People generally agree with the proposition that it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering on animals. And then we talk about what necessity means, and, and we talk about how if necessity means anything, you can't, you can't justify the infliction of suffering for reasons of pleasure or amusement or convenience, because if that's an acceptable justification, then the rule that it's wrong to inflict suffering without an adequate justification means nothing, because it's, there's nothing it rules out. If pleasure, amusement, or convenience is sufficient, that basically brings everything in. So, most people agree that it's wrong to inflict suffering on animals without an adequate justification, and that pleasure, amusement, or convenience doesn't work, and that's when you make the arguments that, well, look, you know, if you object to dog fighting, if you object to bullfighting, if you object to killing Lennox or whatever, why are you not a vegan? And you'd be surprised how people get provoked by that argument and how it gets a lot of people thinking. As a matter of fact, it actually works better with people who aren't animal people than it does with animal people. The problem with animal people is you make the argument to them and they say, well, it's really, really very interesting, but, you know, I, I'm a member of X group and X group supports, you know, Happy Meat or X group promotes uh, cage-free eggs or, you know, free-range eggs or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a big, a big part of the problem with animal people is you're making the argument to them and, you know, they have the moral concern, uh, but the logic and the rationality don't get through because they, they've been um, propagandized, as it were, by these large organizations that tell them that they can discharge their moral obligations to animals by consuming compassionately. Compassionate consumption. Ugh, what a horrible, horrible phrase. I can't tell you. Just a horrible phrase, you know. Consume compassionately, compassionate consumption. It's just dreadful. Bad idea. Bad, 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 bad idea. And so, um, so I think that most people do have moral concern about animals. And I think that, that, you know, that, that we can then 
make the logical, rational arguments to them about why they ought to extend that moral concern to all sentient beings and not just some sentient beings, and why cognition doesn't matter, you know, that, that you know, it doesn't, they shouldn't extend their moral concern only to animals who think like us. As long as the animal is sentient, that's the sufficient, that's the sufficient similarity for purposes of invoking the moral rule, and that we ought to support the abolition, not the regulation of animal exploitation. As I say, is it going to work with everybody? No. But if people think that animals are members of the moral community, then they're going to at least listen to what you say, and, and you're, going to, you're going to interest them, you'll persuade some, you'll get some on the road to thinking, and you might have some problems with people who are animal people who say, well, you know, yeah, I accept all that, however... I believe it's all right to eat cage-free eggs because my, you know, the organization that I'm a member of tells me that that's a responsible thing to do. That's a problem. That's why I say the argument actually works better with non-animal people than it does with animal people. Non-animal people get this a whole lot faster than animal people do. And by, by which, when I refer to animal people, I mean people who are involved with these large welfarist organizations, which tell them that compassionate consumption is a morally acceptable state of affairs. Now, where does this moral concern come from? You know, everyone's, you know, or many people have it, most people have it, many people have it, I don't know, many, most. Um, where does it come from? And the answer is it can come from all different sorts of sources. And it does come from all sources. An example is when I talk about moral concern in Introduction to Animal Rights, I'm talking about the idea, the moral idea, that it's wrong to inflict suffering on animals for reason, you know, without an adequate justification and pleasure, amusement, or convenience can't constitute an adequate justification. Now, I, I, that can be a moral rule that people accept as sort of a secular moral rule that's a, you know, that, 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 that's a, a, a correct moral rule, and they just think of it as, in terms of, of, of it being an intuition which is right. And they don't really think about it beyond that. Okay? So you can be a secular moral realist and sort of say, look, you know, I, I believe that certain moral statements have truth value, and at least some of them are true, and one of them that is true is the notion that it's wrong to inflict suffering without a good reason. That's a true moral statement. Why is it a true moral statement? Because I believe that that's intuitively clear, and, and it's, it's the rule that I use to come to the conclusion that, for example, it is simply wrong to torture a child. Okay, why is it wrong to torture a child? Because it's wrong to inflict suffering without a good justification, and the, you know, the fact that you get pleasure from torturing ch children is not an adequate justification. It's a moral intuition, it's not arbitrary, it's not vague, absolutely clear, makes a lot of sense. People may have may, may may agree with that moral rule for other reasons. They may they may believe as as secular moral realists in the truth of the rule. They may also be Buddhists and they say, well, there's an interconnectedness in all life, and and you know one of the ways I think about that is you know we ought not to make uh, other beings suffer and whatnot. Or they may belong to that you know they may ascribe to a more traditional religious belief system, and they may say, well, look, you know, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Jew, and I believe that God created uh, every, uh, all beings, and that, you know, that I ought not to, to cause any of them to suffer, unless I have a very good reason, and my, my pleasure, amusement, or convenience is not a very good reason, and so, you know, I, I can't do that sort of, of thing. So they, they reject some of the traditional interpretations, which unfortunately have been used to justify species' behavior, they may reject those interpretations. Point is, I don't care where it comes from. It doesn't matter whether it comes from a spiritual source, whether it comes from a religious source, or whether it comes from a completely secular, atheistic source. You may have somebody who says, look, you know, I think that animals are members of the moral community. You say, why do you think that? Well, you know, I grew up with animals, and I just have a deep moral concern about them. It's part of my moral, my moral world. So I don't really care. And I don't ever get into I mean, I, well, I mean, if someone asks me at a lecture 
uh, to discuss the issue, I will discuss the issue. But by and large, you know, when I'm giving a lecture on this, and I, as I said a few minutes ago, I say, well, look, you know, how many people in the audience agree with the proposition that's wrong and inflict suffering on animals without a good reason? Virtually everybody puts up their hand. I don't say, why do you think that? I don't need to. It's not necessary. They believe it. If they believe it, then what I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour and a half or however long I'm talking to them, talking about is why they ought to extend that moral concern to include all non-human animals and why they ought to support the abolition of exploitation, not the regulation, and why abolition means that they ought to be vegans. I'm not going to get into a discussion with them about whether they're Buddhists or whether they're Christians or Jews or Muslims or atheists or whatever. It doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. What matters is that they have the moral concern. If they have the moral concern, then I'll make the logical and the rational arguments in favor of, of including, including all sentient beings in the moral community and in favor of abolition. I don't care where the moral concern comes from. I simply don't care. Neither should you. There are some people who think that if the moral concern comes from anything other than atheism, that it's inappropriate. That's just nonsense. That's complete nonsense. It may come from atheism, fine. I mean, it may come from somebody who just, you know, who's, who's a complete secular moral realist. Doesn't have any particularly spiritual or religious views at all. I mean, I, I think most of us are moral realists. Most of us do believe that at least some moral propositions are true in the same sense that I'm sitting in my office at Rutgers University right now. I am looking at my desk. There is a red cup on my desk uh, that says Rutgers University on it. There is a red cup on my desk. That is a statement which is true because there is a red cup on my desk. It is morally wrong to torture a small child. That is a statement which is true. You say, well, you know, might not be true. And the answer is, you know what? Cup on my desk might not really be red. I might not really be sitting here. I might be a brain sitting in a jar that's being stimulated by electrodes to see an office at Rutgers University and to see a red cup. I mean, if you're going to be a complete skeptic about stuff, you can't just stop being a skeptic. You, know, you, you can't just apply your skepticism to ethical notions or moral notions. You have to apply it there. I mean, why stop there? If you want to be skeptical about the truth of the proposition that it's wrong to inflict, that it's wrong to torture children, why not be skeptical about whether the cup is red? Who knows? I may be the brain in the jar being stimulated. We don't know. Can't really know, can you? So I think that most of us are moral realists in significant ways. I really do. Um, and I think that many of us are secular moral realists. That is, that is, the, the support for the, moral, for the truth of the moral proposition doesn't require anything particularly, certainly doesn't require anything supernatural. It may be coincidental or may be related to our concerns about nonviolence or our concerns about peace as a general moral value and or, or nonviolence as a general moral value or, you know, our perception that there is a connectedness of life that, you know, we're really not uh, sort of separate beings in a sense that we all sort of rely on each other. I mean, you know, we can have those sorts of beliefs which are, you know, to, to call those, I mean, I, I, I would not regard those views as, certainly they're not theistic, they don't have anything to do with God, okay? And I think that, that many of us think in those ways, that we're, we're moral realists, and we may have additional ideas about nonviolence or about the importance of, of, uh, of, of love or whatever, but there's nothing theistic about those views. And we may also be theistic. I have known terrific, some absolutely terrific animal people, terrific human beings generally, who are progressive Christian people, progressive Jews, progressive Muslims. They reject a lot of the, 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 the more reactionary doctrines or the doctrines that limit their moral concern or, or, or that they believe limit their moral concern, and they accept interpretations of their religions which are more expansive and which, which are more, uh, you know, which are more, in, in, uh, which, which 
result in the inclusion of more beings in their moral community than in some other believer's moral community. And the, the bottom line is, I don't care. I mean, what is the purpose of getting involved in a discussion with somebody who says, look, I'm a Christian, and I believe in human rights and animal rights. Indeed, I believe that's what it's all about. And I'm a vegan, and I care about issues of racism and sexism and heterosexism and speciesism and what purpose is served by my saying, well, wait, wait a minute now. You have these theistic beliefs. How do you know God exists? You believe in Jesus Christ. How do you know? I mean, who cares? Similarly, if I'm dealing with, with, with somebody who's a, a secular moral realist and really sort of rejects any sort of theistic notion, Fine, good. What I care about is whether you have moral concern. I care about what sort of person you are. Do you care about non-humans? Do you care about humans? Does your concern translate into action or are you just talking? Do you walk the walk or do you just talk it? If, if you walk the walk, I don't care if you're a, an atheist, a Buddhist, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Martian, I just don't care. Neither should you. So this idea that you know we have to link animal rights or abolition with any particular view like that, theistic, non-theistic, spiritual, whatever, it's crazy, wrong. Okay? Um, as long as people have moral concern, that's what matters. And the good news is I think most people do have moral concern about non-human animals. Then we have to work on them with the logical, rational arguments that we have, the abolitionist arguments that we have, that demonstrate that there is really no reason to limit our moral concern to dogs, or indeed to mammals, or whatever, you know, that, that all sentient beings matter. All sentient beings matter. We may not know whether particular beings are, are, are sentient. And by sentient, what I mean is you're the sort of being who has interests, whatever those interests are. They don't have to be human interests or interests that are like human interests. They're whatever interests that being has. That being has some sort of mind, some sort of mind that prefers or desires or wants whatever that being prefers or desires or wants. That that being can have satisfaction or frustration of what that being, of, 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 of interest, the interest that that being has. That's what it means to be sentient. You know, that, that a being is subjectively aware, has some sort of mind. I think it's a bad idea. I mean, part of the good chunk of the animal community believes that for animals to really matter, they have to have minds like ours. I think that's wrong. I think that's speciesist. What difference does it make if they have minds like ours or they don't? As long as they have, as long as they have interests, you know, can you draw a line between sentient and non-sentient? Well, you know, are plants sentient? No. <laughs> let's just get that. Let's just get that, put that aside right now. Um, you know, plants are not sentient. We have no, we, we can be as reasonably, we can be as certain as we can as in any empirical matter that plants are not sentient. They don't have any sort of nervous system, any sort of mind. Do they react? Yes, they react. So does, the, so does, you know, if you put an electrical current through a, a wire, a bell will go off. The bell will react. It doesn't respond. There is no one there to respond. Similarly with plants. They react. They don't respond. Okay? And as a matter of fact, I, um, I did a debate. There's a book coming out. A uh, philosophy professor um, from Spain who wrote a book about plants plant ethics, and uh, he and I had a debate on the Columbia University website. You can get the, the citation from, uh, from abolitionistapproach.com. I, um, I have a blog post about it, uh, and you can, you can access the debate that I had with Professor Martyr about plant ethics. And I'm sorry, um, uh, it just, uh, I think it's absurd. Um, and, uh, you know, plants are not sentient. Uh, and but what about insects? I don't know. You know, I don't kill them. As a matter of fact, I endeavor when I walk, I, I actually, people think I have 
some problem with my neck, and they'll say, why are you looking down all the time? Do you have a problem with your neck? I say, no, my neck is actually fine. I do yoga. My neck is fine. Um, I just don't want to step on bugs or whatever. And um, and when I'm walking along and I see like a worm, um, uh, it's always that's always a kind of, that that really helps conversations to get started about animal ethics uh, when you're when you're walking with somebody and there's some rain. So this would mean like basically uh, you you have this opportunity all the time if you live in, in the United Kingdom, which is having rain every day it seems. Um, uh, and and there'll be a worm in the on the sidewalk, and I'll stop and I'll pick the worm up and put it into the grass. And um, and people say, why? What are you doing? And which is it's sort of an interesting question to ask because it should be obvious what I'm doing. I'm picking the worm up. And so I said, well, I'm picking the worm up. Well, I see that. Uh, okay. Well, then what is it that you want to know? Why are you doing that? Well, because I'm concerned that the worm's going to be stepped on. Well, why do you care? Why shouldn't I care? The the worm the worm is a sentient being, as far as I know. I I. Assume that the the worm is sentient, and I don't want to see the worm harmed. And since it takes me two seconds of my time to pick the worm up and put the worm over into the grass, why not do it? That has I actually worms have been causally responsible for some of the best discussions I have had with other human beings. So you know, do I know whether I mean you know, I, worms are uh, are not insects, obviously, and um, and they certainly behave and indicate to me that they uh, have that they're sentient. Um, you know, do I know 100 percent? No. Um, you know, there was a I posted something this morning about clams. You know, there was some video about it. You know, a clam was on a table and the clam's foot comes out and. Um, the, the observation was that the clam was trying to eat salt that was on the table. No, this clam was trying to dig. The clam was, 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 was suffocating and was trying, I think, was trying to find sand to dig into. Are clams sentient? I don't know. I don't eat them. I don't, you know, I don't, I wouldn't purchase pearl jewelry or, or, or anything that was made from uh, a clam or a mussel or a, you know, oyster or whatever. Are they sentient? I don't know. So there can be, you know, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good on the plant issue. On the plant issue, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, not in any. I, I don't have any level of uncertainty. You know, insects, eh, I'm uncertain. I don't kill them. You know, if there are insects in the house, I don't kill them. I either leave them alone, or if it's not good to have them around for some reason or another, then I catch them and I put them outside. Um, but generally, I just leave them alone. And when I walk outside, I endeavor not to step on insects. But having said that, it's also clear that just about all the animals we routinely exploit, all the, you know, the, the, the cows and the fish and the pigs and the chickens and the ducks and the lambs and the goats and everybody else's, the lobsters, they're all sentient. So, like, I might not know whether insects are sentient, so what? I know that everybody else that we're exploiting is sentient, so, like, stop it. Don't do it. So, so you know, the so as I say... If I've got somebody who's got moral concern for whatever reason, then I use the logical and rational arguments to say, "Look, you can't, you can't stop it." And what you know, let me give you an example. I'm talking to somebody. I say, "Well, you know, you care about Michael Vick's dogs. Yeah, I do. Well, why don't you care about cows? Well, cows are different. Why are they different? Well, you know, dogs are. You know, they're different. They're they're more cognitively sophisticated. Well, actually, that's not true. But what difference does cognitive sophistication make? I mean, it may, this is an argument I have with, with many people, including many animal people, who think that for some reason that if an animal's smarter, the animal matters more morally. Now, smarts may make it, you know, different levels of cognition may make a difference. Let's think, think about it in human context. You have somebody who's extremely intelligent, and you have somebody who's not intelligent at all. Now, can you justify differential treatment of those people? Well, you might say, well, if somebody's really talented and is a very, very talented, brilliant brain surgeon, we're going to give that person, we're going to reward that person uh, differently from the way that we're going to reward somebody who is um, not particularly intellectually able and indeed may have, you know, may, may, uh, may have borderline uh, mental disabilities. Uh, we're not going to pay that person as much as we pay the brain surgeon. Now, that may be a justifiable situation. 
But if the question is, should we use the really talented brain surgeon or the person with the mental disabilities as a forced organ donor or as a non-consenting subject in a biomedical experiment, I would say they're equal. As a matter of fact, that's the argument I make. The argument I make in Introduction to Animal Rights and many of the other things I've written is that, the, you know, you have to ask, for what purpose are you asking, are these two beings the same? Because people say to me all the time, well, you know, are, are humans and animals the same? I don't even know what that question means. You know, it's like saying, are these, are these humans the same? Well, you know, there are differences. Do the differences matter? They may. You might not want to give the person who's mentally disabled a driver's license if the person is sufficiently mentally disabled so that the person doesn't understand how to operate a motor vehicle or doesn't understand what a stop sign is. It might not want to give that person a, a driver's license. But if the question is, do we use somebody who's mentally disabled as a forced organ donor or as a non-consenting subject in a biomedical experiment or, or should we put them in a circus zoo or rodeo or whatever? The, what, what difference does intelligence matter? You know, but we have this idea that you know, intelligence is sort of morally relevant. It may be for certain purposes, but not for purposes of treatment as a resource. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm on board with all the logical and rational arguments. Indeed, that's what I've spent 30 years of my life developing and developing an inclusive argument that includes all sentient beings and that basically says once you're a member of the moral community we can't treat you as a resource and the issue is not whether the treatment is humane the issue is are you being treated as a resource and if you're a sentient being then morally we can't justify treating you as a resource so I'm all on board with the logical and rational arguments, but you need somebody who cares, you know, has moral concern about animals, or at least some animals, or at least cares about morality. There are people out there who don't, and you aren't going to make any inroads with them. And there are people who do care, and you're going to have a hard time dealing with them because they've been brainwashed by one organization or another into thinking that you know, yeah, they're morally concerned about animals and the solution to the problem is to eat cage-free eggs. There are a lot of people out there. Lots and lots and lots of them. As a matter of fact, I would say right now the dominant paradigm in animal ethics is the happy meat paradigm. That a lot of people out there who are concerned about animals, who are morally concerned about animals, think that they can discharge their moral obligations to animals by eating humanely raised meat or happily raised eggs or, you know, fun milk or, you know, whatever they think they are, you know, and the answer is that's all nonsense. That's complete nonsense. And that's what the evolutionist approach is about. It's about the arguments that show people, that demonstrate to people who care, that their moral concern ought to extend to all sentient beings and that they ought to support abolition and not regulation. That humane slavery is still slavery. I don't believe it's humane for the various... 20,000 million reasons that I give about, you know, the fact that animal welfare reform simply doesn't work. It can't work because animals are economic commodities. It simply can't work. But it doesn't work. And even if it did, it doesn't answer the moral question. Humane exploitation is still exploitation. If you're a member of the moral community and the abolitionist approach says that any sentient being is a member of the moral community, then you have the moral right not to be used as a resource. Period. End of story. So, I started off talking about Lennox. Poor Lennox. That was a sad, sad story. And I hope the legacy of Lennox, for everybody out there who's concerned about Lennox, all the zillions of people, lots of people, it's an international thing. People are concerned all over the place, not just in Ireland, not just in the, in the United Kingdom or in the United States, or it's, it's all over the place. I mean, people all over are concerned about Lennox. Okay, good. Good for you. Be concerned about Lennox. Be outraged about Lennox. But you know what? Let your moral concern about Lennox generalize. Let Lennox's legacy be that you don't just care about this dog in Northern Ireland, but you care about all non-humans and the plight of all non-humans and the mess that they're in because of our selfishness. Let that be Lennox's legacy for all of us. And think about moral reasoning. I mean, without a heart open to the other, arguments about how you ought to treat the other are not going to work. That's common sense. That moral concern 
can come from a number of different sources. Theistic, atheistic, spiritual, it doesn't matter. Secular, moral reasoning, it doesn't matter. What matters is it's there. Okay? What matters is that it is there. And I'm the first to be critical of any doctrine which limits moral concern and which attempts to justify discrimination. I am absolutely clear. I want no part of those, those doctrines. The idea is to care. In a lot of ways, I don't care why you care. I care that you care. Well, I want to um, end there. I think um, I've said all I want to say today. And um, thank you for listening. And I will do another one of these soon. I hope you find them useful. Uh, in the meantime, visit the website abolitionistapproach.com. There's a lot of a lot of stuff there. You know, it's not just the blog essays. There's like uh, little flash videos that you can use to uh, as educational tools. A lot of people actually use those things um, in in their their advocacy efforts, and and they they report to me that they work pretty well, and that's good. I'm glad that, that they do. Um, and uh, but there's you know there's also audio things and and whatnot. But the the site has a lot of materials. For you to for you to access, um, and uh, there's also a Facebook site, uh, the Evolutionist Approach uh, Facebook site, and um, and also I have uh, a Twitter, Gary L. Francione Twitter account, Gary L. Francione, and you can follow me there. And uh, I uh, I will be back doing one of these. As a matter of fact, what I want to do uh, for the next one is I want to get Adam Kahanowitz and Sandra Cummings, who have just done a terrific uh, little vegan kit it's uh, I have a I have an announcement of it on um, on abolitionistapproach.com uh, they've done this terrific website uh, you know it, it's one of those things where you know when you're talking to people about veganism and they come up with these informational questions and you know you're always stumpy because you don't know where to where to direct them well uh, Adam and Sandra have put a lot of time and effort into coming up with an abolitionist vegan kit it's terrific a terrific uh, a thing that they've done project that they've done uh, in their spare time uh, they're both um, they're both really committed advocates and so what I want to do is get Adam and Sandra uh, to talk about their uh, their new vegan starter kit, uh, and and I think I uh, I will try to persuade them to do that, and uh, and maybe that will be the next podcast. But again, thank you for listening, and remember, if you're not vegan, come on. I mean, if you're not vegan, if you're not vegan, you're listening to this, then you're really messed up. But um, but if you're not vegan, go vegan. It's it's easy. It's better for your health. It's better for the planet. But the most important thing is, it's the morally right thing to do. Thanks for listening. Take care. Be vegan. Be nonviolent. Peace.